Hi, everyone, and welcome to Classical Stuff You Should Know. We're a podcast about philosophy, theology, old books, and the classical world, and wow. trying to bring that to the audience in a way that is not boring or terrible, <laughs> and something that is, you know, half enjoyable to listen to. Half. Half enjoyable. Half yes. enjoyable. My name is A.J. Hannenberg, and I am joined by two of my colleagues, Mr. Graham Donaldson. Hi. And Mr. Thomas Fletcher Magby. Hello. And all three of us work at a small classical school here in Austin, Texas, named Veritas Academy. We mostly teach English, and then we have one fella that's, you know, in charge of games. Yeah, that is accurate. I do student life. I teach, or dean of student life at Veritas Academy. Yep, and he talks in chapel and stuff. Talks in chapel and stuff. And today, I think Graham is talking about that time of life mm. when the sun starts to set, mm-hmm. when the arthritis starts to set in, mm-hmm. and yeah. things starts to slow down, and mm-hmm. you can't eat as many pieces of pizza without your thighs responding to it as you used to. Really, when you're young, you work hard at being a good person. Mm-hmm. And when you're old, you don't try Do so you hard. <laughs> Good. You might say it's after virtue. It's after the virtues. <laughs> it's after right. after the virtues. <clears throat> I'm just kidding. Well done. Yeah. No, today we are talking about a book called After Virtue. Um, it is written by, a, I guess he's a moral philosopher. Yes. He's a teacher, historian, philosopher named Alistair McIntyre. Um, Scottish, but teaches at Notre Dame, I think we I concluded. Think yeah. Um, he's taught a lot of places. I think he was at Vanderbilt when he wrote this, or at least um, depending on what edition you have anyway. But he's at Notre Dame and is, although I don't think he would say he is, he's he's definitely a like Aristotle apologist. Yes. The dude's Aristotelian. Um, but anyway, he wrote this book called After Virtue that has become a pretty influential book. It was written in the 80s and it kind of has had a resurgence of interest because... Um, couple years ago, the most, the, the best-selling book in religion was Rod Dreher's The Benedict Option. Um, the Benedict Option is a book about what the Christian church should, how the Christian church should react to basically the modern world where it is right yep. now. And it takes its launching off and the, the name, The Benedict Option, from the last paragraph of Alistair McIntyre's After Virtue. Alistair McIntyre concludes that we are living in a time of massive ethical and a massive ethical paradigm shift from sort of the enlightenment to now we'll get into that and he he concludes that we kind of have have reached a place where we don't have coherence when it comes to talking about ethics that we don't have a framework We're just gibbering and yeah we don't have a a framework for talking about the oughts what we ought to do and Alistair McIntyre likens that to the fall of Rome when we didn't have an instant we didn't have institutions institutions are a big deal from McIntyre and we eventually needed new institutions to be formed and the the ones that happened were the monasteries from from Benedict for for the the Benedictines but other monasteries and so at the end of his book uh, after virtue he says that we are waiting for a new Benedict and he's not really meaning a religious revival he's talking more about um People who are now doing something that are carrying the seeds of, a, of uh, the next moral paradigm. And um, anyway, so Rod Dreher takes the Benedict option from that, uh, the last paragraph of After Virtue. So After Virtue has kind of had a little bit of a renaissance, at least in these Benedict optiony Christian circles. Uh, people are rereading it and looking into it. And my job today is to try to take this very, very difficult book, and it is... It, demands a lot of its audience. This is so academics when they write things, they they write books that are for the people in the trade and they're all very, you know, 
crammed with language that are specific to their job. Mm-hmm. And then they try to write like popular books. Yeah, right. So C.S. Lewis, his books that we know, like Mere Christianity, is him writing books, popular books. Lewis has his academic books like um, The Discarded Image and um, Shoot. What, what's the one about epics? Um uh, I don't remember the name of it. I can't remember. He's got the, the discarded image. He's yeah, got that, has, yeah, the first two chapters are about epics. That, Something yeah, about yeah. flower or rose. Anyway, I can't remember the names of it. Um, and those are his academic books. Apparently, After Virtue is supposed to be Alistair McIntyre's book for regular people. No. <laughs> <laughs> and it requires a pretty in-depth understanding of like the history of moral philosophy and moral philosophers. And but everybody has that. Yeah, everyone's got that. <laughs> uh, I have, I've now read it twice, and every time I've had to sit with my phone next to me open to Wikipedia so I can go and remind myself, okay, okay, what did Kant say again? What did Kierkegaard say again? I've never even heard of this guy. Who's this other person? And then you've got to go and, and Google these things. But anyway, so uh, my attempt today is to try to sort of uh, distill down what his argument is because it's really compelling, and I think he's kind of spot on. Can I blow your mind with one other thing related to McIntyre? Please. His birthday? Yeah. January 12th. Oh, what? What, what? Day, are, what day are we recording this episode? On AJ's birthday. January 12th. January 12th. January 12th. First of all, happy birthday, Thanks. Mr. McIntyre yeah. and AJ. Yeah. Happy <laughs> I mean, birthday, AJ. Yeah, happy birthday, crazy. Mr. McIntyre. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, isn't Sorry. that crazy? Anyway. It is, that is crazy. Yeah. Wow. There's man. a fun fact. Happy, um, happy, happy, 91st, birthday, happy 91st birthday, Mr. McIntyre. Oh, man. We're t- doing your book today. I'm so confused right now because it seems you keep on saying happy 91st birthday. And I'm like, dude, I'm only 35. <laughs> Sorry. I mean, I'm not there yet. Oh, You'll get look, there. No, I believe. You look great for 90. For 91. Thanks. Yeah. Feeling spry. Um, Just after virtue. <laughs> <laughs> so McIntyre sort of starts off this book by saying, we in the modern world have a problem where when we talk about ethics, when we talk about what things we ought to do. There are lots of people who seem to be singing from different hymn books. People seem to be talking, have different modes of filtration or have these different models of talking about what is right right, and what is wrong. And he is then writing this book to sort of ask the question, how did we get here? Um, and um, uh, Thomas, you, I remember you actually brought up one of his thought experiments the thought experiment that he begins this book with in one of the old podcasts we're yeah. talking about do you remember what that was uh the, there he opens with a series of different moral disagreements and then traces essentially a, a line of arguments that do you want me to actually go through one yeah, of the examples can or? you remember like the, there was one about just war yeah i think he has so, or is this that one's on yeah uh, I, I could literally read it to you if that's what you want sure. but so there are three lines of argument that a just war is one in which the good to be achieved outweighs the evils this feels like that moment in anchorman not that i've ever seen that movie where ron burgundy is saying that he's not prepared and then pulls out a jazz flute <laughs> i'm literally anyway, i've never seen that movie oh sorry never mind you're a good christian okay uh this is chapter i've also two never of, seen elf which every christmas gets me in trouble it's anyway. a great movie i know i've never seen it oh, okay that's great a just war is one in which the good to be achieved outweighs the evils involved in waging the war and in which a clear distinction can be made between combatants whose lives are at stake and innocent non-combatants. But in a modern war, calculation of future escalation is never reliable and no practically applicable distinction between combatants and non-combatants can be made. Therefore, no modern war can be a just war and we all ought to be pacifists. That's his first one. Part two, part B of just war. 
If you wish for peace, prepare for war. The only way to achieve peace is to deter potential aggressors. Therefore, you must build up your armaments and make it clear that going to war on any particular scale is not necessarily ruled out by your policies. An inescapable part of making this clear is being prepared both to fight limited wars and to go not only to but beyond the nuclear brink on certain types of occasion. Otherwise, you will not avoid war and you will be defeated. In the third argument, wars between the great powers are purely destructive, but wars waged to liberate oppressed groups, especially in the third world, are a necessary and therefore justified means for destroying the exploitative domination which stands between mankind and happiness. So three different views on just war. Do you want me to say more on that? No, it's just he and he's got other ones. I think abortion is another one that he has in there. And then there's a third one on justice. But his point is not to debate the merits of those views. His point is to say that in the modern world, we now have this sort of plurality of different ways of framing moral questions. And there's no way for those three uh, viewpoints to talk to each other. Yes, that that, that it's not like you can that. If three sort of paradigms of those views sat together that they could hash out middle ground. Right. It's that eventually um, there is an impasse that cannot be bridged through dialectic. Yes. There's an impasse that cannot be bridged through, through a back and forth. And, um, and so his, he's sort of asking himself the question, how did we get here? And sort of what has happened in its history? Um, if you go back into antiquity, there, there seems to be a more solid understanding as to what constituted ethical behavior, whereas in the modern world, there is more of a, um, maybe a plurality of views. Yes. Um, and he eventually, to start off his book, says that um, we sort of landed at a ism of um, sort of ethical framework that he calls a motivism. Uh, this is uh, this is the, the same thing that Lewis talks about in the Abolition of Man. If you want to go back and listen to his Abolition of Man podcasts, but this is the definition he gives to emotivism. So emotivism is the doctrine that not emotivism, emotivism, like you What's, like emoting. Okay, to emote. Got it. Yeah. I, I I couldn't tell if it was motivism or sorry emotivism. emotivism. Mm-hmm. Yeah, to like if, if emotions. Yes, emotivism is the doctrine that all evaluative judgments. And more specifically, all moral judgments are nothing but expressions of preference, expressions of attitude or feeling insofar as they are moral or evaluative in character. So, I don't know. You You're saying to... the same stuff Abolition of Man yes, said. Yes, exactly. Okay. So, would you, would you want to, so how would we, yeah, so he says that, that emotivism is essentially just statements of preference. Yeah, there there is no thing that is objectively good or objectively bad, any... Any more statement you can make about morals or evaluating morals or even like moral or ethical response is all a statement of personal feeling and preference rather than any sort of truth. There Mm -hmm. can be no truth said about right and wrong. Yeah. Um, Alistair McIntyre's statement at the beginning of the book is that we have more or less arrived at this kind of paradigm for thinking about moral questions. He says, if you actually sit people down and ask them, logically, whether or not they think that emotivism is either in, internally coherent or true, most people would say, nah, that's, that's stupid. But most people functionally act as if it is true. Right. They but act, don't, it's, it's weird, it's, isn't it a duality? Like, they, they speak as if it's true, yep. but they don't act if it's, as if it's true. Um, well, some do, and this is kind of the, the thing. So, I mean, some people probably still act under a paradigm of... 
of what we would maybe call traditional morality, traditional mm. ethics. Mm. Um, but they would say, well, um, I feel like this is the right thing to do. And if somebody else feels that it's the wrong thing to do, who am I to... Well, that's what I'm saying. They will, they will act and do... I mean, they, they more or less act close to normal morality, but then they would speak as though they're, it is merely their preference that they're doing. Exactly. Right. Yeah, yeah. So most people will say, or, I mean, it's kind of moral relativism, is it? Is mm-hmm. that very close to emotivism? I th- and I think, yeah, you, you could, you could probably use them interchangeably without too much friction. Too much friction? Okay. Mm-hmm. I'd have to look into that more. But there's something AJ is getting out of, so in the war example, someone who believes in only pacifism wouldn't treat as equally valid other opinions, right? Or, or someone who says that we need to prepare for war wouldn't say pacifism is an equally valid option, right? I, I think so, yeah. Well, my point is that I can I can say all day long that my statements about right and wrong are simply my preference, my preference but then when someone steals my sandwich and punches me in the mouth, right. I'm not going to say, well, he simply prefers to steal my sandwich. Or take the... I, I'm going to live as though there is some sort of yes. moral base there. Yeah. Um... Yeah, I think so then most people have this idea of the uh, I frame things in terms of preference and but there are still well, this is this is the problem. But there are still these there are still these true things that 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 people um, want. Yeah, they will will live as as though those morals are true, but mm -hmm. won't be able to explain why. Yes, exactly. That's the problem. And won't be able to explain why. And this is sort of jumping ahead a little bit. But the modern answer for what is our foundational bedrock for what we, how we should behave is something that we've called rights. Mm. And oh, we'll, we'll get there in a second. That's a new twist. That I've got my rights yep. to these sorts of things. And he says that that's the modern man's um, smuggling in an objective morality without having to make it objective. Ah, <laughs> and what do they say about the left? The right, yes, exactly. Um, <laughs> no, anyway. I'm just this really is really interesting. So, um, but there's no valid, so good, and the, the big thing is that there's no valid rational justification for moral claims. And the, the key is a rational justification for it. Can you rationally justify rights? Sorry, I'm, no, you I'm can't. No, you can't you rationally can't. justify rights. Right. Um, that you sort of have to, um, you, you have to posit them as if they are self-evident, but you- Because if we're simply evolved animals- why do we deserve anything specifically? Like, is, is it that they can't base rights on anything specific? I mean, you're, you're getting to the, the incoherence yes. of the modern problem, yes. which is that we want to have overarching oughts mm-hmm. that are before logic and reason, but we don't want to say that they are, that they exist and are binding. Right. Or um, even self-evident. Or even right. self-evident. Yeah. So we want to exist as if, we want to live as if those things, that everybody lives by them, but we are sort of squeamish to say that they are above, like metaphysical, or that they are not, uh, that they are beyond reason, that they are a priori, I guess. Mm-hmm. He says, so this is the modern incoherence of, of the modern person, is that we want to claim an objectivity to action, but then we also don't want to... Um, accept the objectivity of that, of those claims to, yeah, we want to posit that any moral statement is simply a preference and then clamor for our rights. Yes. 
Yeah, which is why he... Anyway, and so then the moral action ends up being like indignation and protest, but we'll get there in a second. Um, So there's no valid rational justification for moral claims. Now, Alistair McIntyre's... The the main bulk of this book is him tracing the history of philosophical thought, which is very interesting, but very dense. Mm -hmm. And we're not really going to... We're sort of talking about his beginning and his ending on on the podcast. Uh, And we're not really going to follow his whole train of thought. But he essentially says that... There was a decoupling of moral uh, understanding that happened in the early Enlightenment, and we began this new project, the Enlightenment project. And the Enlightenment project was trying to get to moral claims of justification, I ought to do this, without having any pre determined sort of um, uh, first principle things. We wanted to do it by reason alone. This was Kant's, uh, Immanuel Kant, this was his big project. Um, That Kant's ethic was that we can get to moral claims by pure reason, by logic. Um, And then the modern, or you would maybe the postmodern claim is that we no longer believe that we can get to it through reason. But we get to, but the, the the modern ethic is the importance of choice, that we choose these things, and having the ability to choose is the big sort of. Um, uh, um, I don't, it's what's important. It's, it's what's, what's important. Yeah, yeah. Yes, our ability to choose is what's important, and this is Nietzsche, and this is Kierkegaard. I was going to say that yeah. sounds very Nietzschean. Yes. Yes. It's yes. just I I choose, and therefore it is right. So Nietzsche and Kierkegaard are, as far as McIntyre is concerned evidence and the fact that modern man is acting this way is evidence that this enlightenment experiment has failed and he, in fact he has a very delightful chapter called why the Mo- why the enlightenment experiment had to fail mm-hmm. which is very you know very fun um but so yeah if we really wanted to to dumb it down we had a way of existing um in sort of the classical world and the medieval world and then there was this break I'll explain what that was in a second. And then there was this break where we tried to have everything through reason without having to posit any either objective morality or idea of a telos. First principles. Or any sort of first principles. We rejected all first principles and said, no, we can get to those same conclusions that first principles gave you through reason alone. But doesn't Kant thinks he succeeded, And Kant thinks he succeeded in this. (laughs) Close the book. We figured it out. Problem solved. But subsequent interpreters of Kant say, no, you haven't succeeded. So yeah. Kant's big, um, his big conclusion was essentially the the do unto others. Yes, basically the golden rule. The golden rule. So yeah. he says, Kant thinks that he comes through reason to the conclusion, um, act as if people are ends, not means. Mm. Isn't that, I think that's essentially it. Sure. I wasn't, I didn't really prepare going into the history of this because oh. I, I wanted to get to the conclusion. So I'm a little, fu- I can't really remember the, Kant's uh, conclusion on this. He, he, there are different, he has different ways of phrasing it too. The, the, the one I've always heard is that act in such a way as if everyone acted in the same way that it would, it would go well, yes. essentially. Mm-hmm. You should, you should not steal because if everyone in the world stole, it'd be a problem. Mm-hmm. That, that's the version of it I've heard. But then people come back and they say, go well, what do you mean by that? Sure. What are you, to what are you appealing? And or you can oh, also, yeah, what mm-hmm. do you mean by things would go well? Yeah, yeah. yeah. Right. Or, or you have funny, or, um, you know, you shouldn't eat fish because, you know, the world would be better if no one ate fish on Tuesdays. Like, you can get, you can get to weird conclusions mm-hmm. by following that rule. And the they make the same criticism. Chesterton makes the same criticism of Nietzsche when mm-hmm. Nietzsche says, like, something is higher. Mm-hmm. Right? He keeps he uses that language a lot. This is a higher and better. But then doesn't say. Or, or, what he's appealing to. Yeah, he's right. appealing to some sort of base base thing and 
Chesterton's like, what he means is good. Right, exactly. It is good to do this, right. but he doesn't want to admit that there's a good. Actually, so he uses good. words like higher and right. like further, right? Yeah. So in the 17th and 18th century, this was the moral paradigm, which was if you can use reason alone, we can get to the oughts. We can get to the this is what we should do statements. McIntyre says that eventually, um, when we got into uh, the 19th and the 20th century, that system couldn't carry water. Like that system actually didn't work. And then you have these philosophers popping on the scene and saying, no, it's not reason. It is choice. It is the, the very fact that I exist and I am, an, I am a decisive being that f- from which I derive meaning. And my ability to stand up and make a choice about how I'm going to exist is the meaning. And this is that sort of the postmodern cry. So, um, and then from that, it, it, it doesn't take very long to get to the, your truth is your truth, my truth is my truth. Right. We need to come up with, you, each individual person needs to come up with their own ideas of what is true based on how they, strong, how they strongly feel about something. Right. So uh, we now kind of live in a, um, I don't know, you could call it like a soft Kierkegaard world. Mm. Like, I don't think Kierkegaard or, or Nietzsche who would look at sort of the, the your truth is your truth and my truth is my truth and, and be happy with it. Just, um, but that's sort of what we live in now is we have this emotivism. Uh, I, I really f- feel you guys as if this thing is true. So right. we should act, we should all just sort of do that. Yeah. And that's not, that's an argument, that's, that's not something you can argue with. Um, because how, who am I to tell AJ how he feels? Right. And there's no way of being proven wrong in that way. Mm -hmm. And so it's just whether I feel strongly or not. Mm -hmm. And then it's almost more of a, it's a game of influence more than a game of, um, conversation, influence, um, Mm -hmm. persuasion. Yeah. So this is, this mm -hmm. is strange because what, what Nietzsche advocated for was the revaluation of all values. Mm -hmm. He says that quite a few times. And if, if we have actually done that, if you sort of cut the feet out of the values, if you sort of say, okay, what value are they to me? Well, you are still sort of comparing them against something, right? And I, it can, it can <laughs> what are you valuing them against? Yeah, yeah exactly. Sure. I, That's like funny. if you are if you are going to revalue them, yeah. well, you, there still seem, needs to be some sort of measurement. And if the measurement is simply what I want, well, then it seems like we have succeeded, right? right. What Nietzsche wanted is what we've done. We are mm-hmm. reevaluating the values based on our personal preference, and so this is where we end up in yeah. sort of a nebulous, wishy-washy world where nothing means anything. Mm-hmm. So I think Nietzsche might've been very happy with it, right? We are yeah, all maybe, willing right. to our own end, right? Mm-hmm. <clears throat> I guess I read, uh, it's like reading the existentialists. They propose like a, a kind of despairing worldview, but then end very hopefully of, you know, therefore we can go and um, choose who we are and make something of our lives and make it worth something. Does that make but sense? Worth like, something to who? It, and, yeah, yeah. I'm not saying it's coherent. It's, all yeah, right. yeah. it's, it's romantic is yeah. what it is. Yeah, it's, it's very romantic. It, that's, that's what I mean. And so they still kind of had that romantic flair but then at, I don't know if you count World War II and World War One and Two, and then we lose that kind of romanticism. Like the world becomes hollowed out. Yeah. yeah. Um, I don't know how you trace these ideas, but that's a way of thinking. That World War One, I, I mean, that we, you sort of have those romanticism of a, uh, and you have this sort of hope for a, a bright, shiny future. Yeah. But then the reality of a world that is allow is sort of letting individuals choose their own morality is not going to lead to Doesn't sort of well. this beautiful right. uh, uh, smorgasbord of, of, you know, sort of 
progressive love. It's it's right. going to actually uh, and end up being the, uh, a war of will against will yep. and power versus power. Right. Um, and that's I think that's the history of, of the 20th century yep. is sort of the the fruit being born out of this decup of of this thinking that ethics can be dis, can be concluded rationally. McIntyre says that the end of that project is not is, yeah is this. Um, Emotivism. The end of this project yes. is this emotivism where we get to the point where people just sort of need to feel something strongly for it to be true because they don't have anything to point to to justify their behavior. He says, or we try to. Uh, the thing that we try to use to justify our behavior is some sort of statement of rights. And the statement of rights, what's it even called in the UN? It's called the uh, human rights yeah but what, what what is the what is the verb it's the declaration oh. of human rights okay. right we stand we up are... and we declare this thing right it's not the um you know recognition it's not the code <laughs> it's not the it's not the uh, a received thing yeah. it's not an a priori thing it's if a declaration it's yeah. as if a generation just said you know what we declare this and now it's now it's law right. so um but there's I, no real reason for well but the reason is that we declare it. So it's a theory. It, yes, the reason is that we declare it. Yeah. So we've all stood up and said... These are the rights that we think we should have. Even though we all didn't stand up and do it. it sure. Was, it was done. Yeah. Um, on uh, our behalf. On our behalf. By others. Yes. But then, then we, thank heavens, you guys. I just, I'm so glad they did <laughs> Someone it. Someone so did it for you. Yeah. But now we have this thing. is like, there's no... There's no... What's, what's the test for what is a right and what is not a right? How does something become a right? Um... Um, we have the right to what? Privacy. We have the right to happiness. We have the right to health. We have the right to education. And is education you, a right? You know, if so you it's trust just, Facebook, you also have the right to unhappiness. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> good. Yeah. Um, do we have a right? You know, so the question is, you know, what actually ends up becoming this right? And how do you appeal? And what is the what is the test that something needs to pass? I have a right to my own. I have a right to safety, to my own mental safety, to my own mental health. Mm-hmm. Like, Healthcare. Healthcare, um, free healthcare. Yeah, exactly. So then, how do you? Well, what, what, what actually sort of trips the scales, or what actually sort of makes it into being? Yeah, when there's a no right, when there's no logical, when there's no, you know, when first it's just principle a base for a right. Yeah. When it's a mm-hmm. declaration of rights, you can declare anything as a right. Mm-hmm. I can declare that. But let me free cars. Can I take the other side just for kicks and giggles? Yeah. yeah. Like so, because there is no basis for those rights. There's no litmus test mm-hmm. to say whether it should be a right. Instead, they're determined democratically. So instead of it being said, you know, for however many thousands of years, like these are the rights that have been written down, Mm -hmm. the UN can say, actually, in 2020, this should be the list of rights. Yeah. Uh, McIntyre says that they're not declared democratically or they're declared democratically insofar as they are emoted the strongest. Yes, that's what I mean. Or, Or in the United States that, you know, we are a nation of many different ideological strains. And so... It's whoever can elect people to Congress, then who can get laws passed that then make those things right. Sure, but then rights are below or above, or however you want to say it. Rights are are before politics. Politics ah. is downstream from rights, um, or m- maybe, maybe should, even some, maybe should be. But yeah. uh, if we've lost any type of basis, I mean, this is isn't this why people care about politics so much? That because there is nothing. Politics becomes an ultimate thing because politics establishes my rights. Well, let me, let me give well, you this. That, oh, go for it. I was going to say, and isn't that what's dangerous? If po- yeah, politics sure. declares my rights in the positive, they can also declare my rights in the negative. Sure. If in 2020 I had the right to free healthcare, in 2021, whatever take it away. coterie of oligarchs wants to get together, they can say, 
your rights are now no more health care ever. And it's only available to those of us who mm-hmm. are the elite. And we are the elite. Mm-hmm. And those are our rights. Mm-hmm. And not yours. Because sure. these are, this is what we declare. Sure. We have declared our rights. Yep. Right? So if they can be given by democracy, they can also taken be taken away. by democracy. Yeah. Sure. So if rights, so one way that I think rights are talked about, or at least um, if we wanted to use a metaphor for it, is like an undiscovered country or like a dark room that we're still discovering. Yep. So take, for example, let's say if we had a new technology that created a new environment for existing. So mm-hmm. let's say that VR technology existed and you... Wait, it doesn't? The future, it, I mean, <laughs> the future is here, man. In a, in, a, in a way that was sort of prevalent in our life. And you, Thomas, wanted to exist in the VR world as a cat person. Uh-huh. Hey, you can't tell me what to do. And then outside of the virtual reality world, you wanted to be... You wanted your virtual reality self to be... Um, acknowledged in the meat world okay. and you wanted to be acknowledged as a cat person in uh-huh. the meat world. The only way that you could say, eventually you would get down to saying, I have a right to be acknowledged as the cat person. Mm-hmm. If you like, or if you were trying to make up some sort of law, the people in the real world were not treating you like a cat person and you, right. and you said, but I want to be treated as a cat person. Eventually the, the, the um, justification for, that you would have for that mode of treatment would be having to fall back on saying that it is my right to be treated the way I want to be treated. Yeah, everyone. Yeah, since we, uh, who are you to tell me? I think we're, uh, cat person is you know, extending it to a certain absurdity. Maybe not. I don't know. But because we can't reach consensus. It's an absurdity now. Sure, yeah, yeah, give it, <laughs> Wait 30 years. Yeah. Why that long? But so if that, uh, since we can't reach any type of consensus, therefore we should respect people that they have different opinions on who they are. And so, I mean, we see that. that Good. That's fine. Yeah. And I, I think I agree with that. Uh, McIntyre, uh, at the end of his book, says that is good insofar as now we have institutions of society that um, need to be that, – that help us to orient our lives. But yes. that's, that's the end of his book. Yes. Um, so he says that the, the sort of the justification that modern man has for essentially replacing some sort of idea as – what human beings ought to do, or some sort of teleology, and I'll explain those what those are in a second, is an appeal to rights. Mm-hmm. And he says, with, an agro- with a growth of an appeal to rights, um, you've got um, um, you, you've got this the, the the modern sort of way of acting is through protest and is through indignation. Um, I don't believe that. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> well, let's see if I can find it. Shoot. Oh man, I didn't write my. I didn't write the pages down. Um, but what he means by this is like, um, if you are going to have rights um, that are not provable, or that there is no criteria of what can get added and what doesn't get added, the only way that something that that society can recognize that that a right has been violated is if um, people feel as if their rights have been violated because their right has been violated for somebody else's utility. Right. And that's why someone would protest. They feel that my right to X has been violated because the person in power doesn't see it as my right to X and is doing this for utility. So my right to housing is being violated by the person in power's utility by saying, oh, this this district of Austin would be better if I could turn it into condominiums and not low-income housing. Yeah. Um, this might be zeroing in too much on the examples we've said so far, mm-hmm. but let so taking this rights language. So, so, you know, people need food and a place to sleep to live. Why is it not 
than logical argument to why not just follow that and say because those are requirements to like actually be alive therefore we should not have starving and homeless people in america therefore everyone should have a right to food and shelter Mm -hmm. if i take that as a um as a train of thought same maybe aj with your healthcare example you know um people will die if they can't get appropriate health care why not then say therefore people have a right to that health care so i think his his reaction would be you don't need to couch it in language of rights when you can ah. when you should be couching it in the language of the good life that's essentially his conclusion is that is that um what we talk when we when we talk about rights we are trying to Take have a baseline justification for moral behavior that, um, and we're trying to either say that it is something biological or that it is something, or so so it's, within I, my person is yes, the right for healthcare. It's either, it's either a biological pr- uh, thing that we can say, uh, um, um, which is a, an intellectual problem, or it's just a declaration. It is a purely <laughs> um, uh, existential declaration. It's me just saying, I want. It's things. me saying I want and or you getting a group of people that all want the same thing and saying that that we have a right to this right. because we want it. Yeah. Um, or it's giving the other side was giving some sort of biological justification for this. Mm-hmm. It is. Um, and he would and he would say that by having it that he needs to go a, a step l- below that, a step lower than that and say, no, we need to appeal to some sort of. Um, tell us that there is a vision of what the good man is and moral action is supposed to enable that good, is supposed to be enable the good life for people. And and the mode of that action is virtue. That's his big conclusion. Um, But he's saying that the modern world is trying to have the fruit of that without going back and having the belief in the a priori or the ontology or the, um, the, uh, uh, help me out what's the word i'm trying to say the the code the, the ethic the the allegations are you still talking no, about no. tau yeah yeah exactly yeah explain what you mean by tau for so people in, who may not be familiar yeah with if it. you haven't listened to our previous podcast on the abolition of man it's a three-parter it's pretty good because yeah. we all read it together usually we have our episodes led by one of us this one was co-led right it was mm-hmm. you two but you were a part of that, right? I was a part of it. I didn't lead one of them. Oh, okay. Um, in any case, it's it's C.S. Lewis's book called The Abolition of Man, and the first chapter is about education, partially about mm-hmm. how we educate first principles out of our kids by telling them that it's all opinion, and then we expect them to be virtuous. Yeah. So by telling them that courage or warfare or all of those things are just personal preferences and then expect them to be courageous. Um, and then the second chapter is about the Tao. Now what he means by the Tao is this set of first principles. It's in every culture. It's been here since the beginning of mankind. And it's the things like courage is good and cowardice is bad. Right. And while the Tao can shift and some things can become exaggerated to extremes to the detriment of other principles. Right. And I'd, I'd say that in our, our particular era, it's, you know, rights and uh, tolerance mm-hmm. are and are sort of exaggerated to the detriment of the other virtues. In other eras, it's, be, it's been courage, right? So yeah. courage to the detriment of other virtues. Um, but even if it shifts a little bit, you are still seeing that the same principles expressed throughout pretty much every culture. And that's what allows us to say things about cultures that are not our own, like the Nazis, right? Mm-hmm. If the Nazis preferred to kill Jews, and that was their preference, if we maintain that 
statements about right and wrong are only preference, then their preference was just as good as ours. Mm-hmm. So the Tao is that sort of set of first principles. It is the way. Mm-hmm. And if you are disagreeing that there is something like that, then you are standing firmly within the Tao because you are admitting that there are things worth having and other things that truth in particular, and that knowing untruth is bad, right? You can't even criticize the Tao without standing in it. Mm-hmm. Everyone's in it all the time. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, and then um, I guess emotivism would be either the Nietzschean trying to get out of the Tao or just the um, the willful ignorance of of the towel around you and just picking and choosing the things you want. It's, it, I'd say if you can draw a metaphor, it's like tank picking the towel up off the ground and suspending it in the air, yeah. right? The towel is there, but you don't know what it's connected to and you can't really give any sort of basis for it when really the towel is, is the ground. Yeah. So then can I, can you take this, um, just use an example, like, so instead of a rights based language around, I have a right to, we just said food, shelter, healthcare or privacy or any of the examples you've said so far, mm-hmm. can you compare what that would be in rights language compa- as opposed to teleology and mm-hmm. imagining the good life? Yes. Yeah. Um, that is a g- great question. I think, um, I don't really know how I feel about his criticism of rights because in many ways, rights just sort of sounds like the same thing as, or it could be the same <laughs> thing as just like telos sure. or a teleological language um, because you're appealing to Stand, you're appealing mm-hmm. to a standard that you can't prove. It's just it's a given. It's an axiom. Right. Um, uh, I think he's just saying that the axiom of rights is um, subpar to the axiom of virtue. Okay. Um, mainly because the axiom of rights is some is uh, um, maybe requires nothing of a person. It's just a status that you should get, mm-hmm. as opposed to virtue, which is an action that you can or cannot do, and then the result of what you can or cannot do is is, is what you get. Mm. Um, but let's see. So, um, but but a good life still involves food and shelter and healthcare and those things. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. So maybe well, let me read the section where he talks about okay. protest, and maybe this will give us some mm, somewhere some clues to go into what yeah, he's talking about. Okay. So he says. But protest is now almost entirely that negative phenomenon which characteristically occurs as a reaction to the alleged invasion of someone's rights in the name of someone else's utility. The self-assertive shrillness of protest arises because the facts of incommensurability ensure that protesters can never win an argument. The indignant self-righteousness of protest arises because the facts of incommensurability ensure equally that the protesters can never lose an argument either. Hence, the utterance of protest is characteristically addressed to those who already share the protesters' premises. The effects of incommensurability ensure that protesters rarely have anyone else to talk to but themselves. This is not to say that protest cannot be effective— It is to say that it cannot be rationally effective and that its dominant modes of expression give evidence of a certain perhaps unconscious awareness of this. So he's saying that if someone is going and protesting a housing development under the basis that you're trampling the rights of, let's say, the poor neighborhood, he's saying that you cannot win that argument by a rational argument to the legislators. You can't say, you guys are making a terrible logical mistake here. You're essentially saying, I have a right to X, you have a utility for 
for for this thing, for building a housing project. My right trumps your utility. And there's there's no um, he he so he asserts that there's no reason why that would be so. Someone in power can just say like no tough right, Um, and that's sort of what happens. Why do your rights trump the right of the? Developer, the dude to yeah, this dude he, to make he money. He has a million whatever. dollars. He has the right to spend those, mm-hmm. that million and boot you off his land. And because there's those legal, um, you know, sort of truths for the impoverished neighborhood, um, uh, protest becomes the logical avenue because it is an attempt to move emotions as right. opposed to logically win an argument. Right. And so his point is, is that if you're going to base a system of oughts on rights. You're, the only thing that you can do is move emotions as opposed to Sh- win arguments. Shout at each other. And maybe that's why it's emotivism, right? Yes. I can't get the developer shut down logically, but I sure can get on the news and make, yeah. it, make him really unpopular. Now, Thomas, your question is, okay, fine. Then if we're Aristotelians, how can you get the, the developer to not do it logically? Or how can you, how can yeah. you convince him? And I don't think – and I, I would hmm, – um, I'm not sure what he would say. Uh, what would an Aristotelian say in that situation? Uh, would he say that the developer is greedy or would he look at it and say that this is helping the polis as a whole? Mm. Um, this is especially because McIntyre, you talked about this earlier, that the end of the book is to locate these moral arguments to communities that can agree on certain core values. Mm-hmm. And so at that point, your conversation is not power, like mm-hmm. you're saying. It's an argument of what is right for this community based on um, the the story shared vision the shared vision and tradition of, that they live in of what we should look yes. like mm-hmm. and so then that's when you know the the developer is not some person from you know a different state it's a person from three blocks down yes. who you know does that you, I, you've located I think it. that's probably yeah. Yeah, it yeah. so I mean in some sense maybe uh, Aristotelian ethics can only exist in small uh, a small polis of where people know each other that's that's why the Benedict option is exactly. typically centered around yes. uh, a tight group, a tight, small group of people kind of living life. Um, is it thick community is the term like where it, it means something Two C's. <laughs> Stop. Why are you like this? <laughs> Hello, all of our don't high school listeners. You all are professionals. You all are professionals who just put that on a recording. I hate everything. No, you're good. Um, <laughs> I we just want to make sure that those things go. They're fragile. You don't. Yeah, want to yeah, they, very they, fragile. Yeah, they drop. Yeah. It is unfortunate. Yeah. Shattered. Yeah. So yes. Yeah, so that that's how you then get to Benedict Option communities, mm-hmm. which are again small communities where there is some type of consensus on what is right for that community. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. There is actually maybe an interesting book or an interesting thought experiment to go down and say when. Yeah, what has the what has a nation something that's too, too big for you to know everybody? What has that done to the history of of ethical philosophy, right? I mean, you're sort of touching on it right now. Is now you've you've got to sort of get to a um, common a, ethos, yeah, or yep. or a bigger code or something a little bit more like generic as mm-hmm. opposed to you know like the ending of um, of it's a wonderful life mm. where I was like, oh, I don't have her money. It's in Fred's house. You mm. know, right. uh, that, you know, the, the, it's a wonderful life. Like that, that's pretty, that's pretty good. good. That's pretty good. Thank you. That's pretty good. That's my Jimmy. That's my Jimmy Smith. Martha. I don't have her money. It's from Fred's house and Bill's house. And, okay. Anyway. Um, <laughs> but right. The, like that movie is, huh? is a localism love yes. story. Yeah. yeah. Um, and it's in the face of sort of growing, um, a growing sort of, not, 
sort of hashtag capitalism, but sort of um, growing corporatism, let's right. put it that way. Um, we're, we're kind of getting off track a little bit, but this is this is interesting. Yeah, to answer your question, I think he would say, yeah, it, it would end up coming down to this or to a, uh, a thing of a question of local as opposed to. But then also maybe those housing developments are good because there's a benefit to that community for having new high end uh, apartments or whatever the mm-hmm. developer is making. It's again, it's, it things get things stop being black and white when it's not just these are the good protesters. These are the bad mm-hmm. uh, developers, corporations, whatever. Um, and so that's what. Yeah, that's what he's getting at here. That the size of your community matters and how in the type of moral discourse mm-hmm. you can have. One other little helpful heuristic that he says is that moral paradigms also end up creating what he calls characters. And what he means by this is that every moral paradigm um, or even like subculture in a moral paradigm ends up having a, cl- uh, a story as to what is the good man in that moral paradigm. So the example that he gives is that in Victorian England, the example of the characters, uh, those who are living virtuously according to that moral paradigm, would be like the explorer going off and charting the North Pole for science, the engineer, the man who is building you know, these amazing – the new world, and um, – or sort of the modern world, or the the headmaster, you know, the headmaster of the public school who is, you know, uh, pushing back the forces of ignorance, right? Every culture and time period has their exemplars and has their what he what he calls characters. For modern emotivism, the characters that he says are um, one that's kind of dying out uh, as as we move on, and that was like the wealthy aesthetic, the person who cares about. Um, the aesthetics of life and curating a beautiful life. Um, and there is lots to be said maybe about Instagram with that. Um, sure. The, the second- Kylie Jenner, the number one. Exactly. No, seriously. Like <laughs> yeah. if you think about the amount of effort and energy that people say the good life is, and then it's a visual yep. representation of what the good life is. Um, and the second character of the modern emotivism is the therapist. Mm. The therapist, ha- the, the, the goal of the therapist is that you are happy and that you achieve your happiness, and then the therapist needs to learn tricks and tools to be able to get you to live your best life. There's no appeal to what to a good. There's no appeal to the good life. There's there's a an attempt of getting you to your best life, and so they're sort of working you through your problems to get to your happiness. So the therapist, and the last one is the manager. Hmm. Manager is very similar. Except instead of doing it in a spiritual sense with the therapist, he's doing it almost in a uh, a material sense. Mm. Um, The best thing to do is, I don't really care what this company does. I don't really care what goods they're doing. I need to hear the best practices to make this the most efficient Mm. and to get us where we're trying to go. Growth, growth, growth. Um, And um, so he says that, yes, that that the idea of manager, therapist, and aesthete, which is a word I can never pronounce, end up being the, uh, the the modern characters of the of the emotivist world. Mm-hmm. I think he's right on this. I think he's kind of dead on in saying that um, the people that we hold up as um, the modern um, gurus or the the people who have sort of modern life figured out yep. fall into one of those three categories. We see those as modern exemplars. You know, the aesthete is the influencer. Uh, the therapist is the the self help book person. Right. You know, live your best life by like I don't know, eating pie or whatever. I would that call would be, that, that, would one. Be that sounds book. great. Yeah, actually, I would do sorry, that. I, yeah. yeah, 
I'm, is I'm, that a book we could read? I'm supposed to not. Yeah, um, think I would the, like to read that book. Yeah, like, if you that. think of most TED Talks, most TED mm. Talks fall into the category of therapy or man or how to better manage. Right. Um, uh, I saw but, a cool one on fungus once. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, that's, 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 I don't think that's either. That's of those the fourth two. category. Oh, sorry. The fourth yeah, category. Yeah, cool it's, fungus. It's fungus. Cool yeah, fungus. Yeah. Um, Can I ask what these are then in opposition to? So these are three modern mm-hmm. um, visions. What is a superior one? Or, uh, yeah. Or is there some alternative? I'm trying to think of, yeah. What would. Is there a name for what? Uh, he doesn't name the. He actually leaves it at the end and says, um, the, the aesthete, the therapist, and the manager all don't have a goal. Oh. They don't have an end. They don't have a telos um, that is unified. It's, it's sort of their own, their own telos. Right. And if that ends up being what the citizenry is made up of, our institutions that we have cannot sustain that if right. that is the goal of human life is either chasing after personal aesthetic preferences, um, the therapist who's trying to sort of manage emotions and the manager who's trying to, you know, um, optimize whatever it is. Right. Um, uh, he doesn't give an example as to what the characters ought to be. Um, he says, he gives examples of what they were in the past. So he talks about what the Greek hero, what mm, their, yep. he talks about in the ancient Greek world when it really was a virtue ethic purely. Um, he says what their characters were, and I can't remember what they are. It's essentially like, you know, the, the, the Greek hero, the, right. the, either the, um, something like an Achilles or like an Odysseus or like, a, 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 you know, a wise elder. The Middle Ages have theirs, um, but he never really gets into what uh, he thinks the characters of a more, sustainable or healthy ethic should be. Yeah. And I think that's kind of what he's leaving it up to. Um, there are, yeah, and so this is kind of what Rod Dreher is essentially talking about when he's talking about the Benedict Adoption is creating a, a thick community wherein people can have not only institutions that can that can sustain community, so the an institution like church, mm-hmm. and and also giving people an understanding of the traditions that they are part of. Um, um, And then I guess characters will come out of that. um, Based on your tradition. Based on your tradition. But then, yeah, so then uh, um, uh, McIntyre sort of ends it by saying, um, uh, I find it kind of unsatisfying. He he essentially just sort of says, we need to get back to an idea, a vision of, of talking about um, the good life and ta- and 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 creating cultures, not creating cultures, almost like rediscovering traditions and maintaining institutions to foster traditions and to give people not only catechizing into their tradition but also an understanding of their tradition so that they can live a life in community. Because the modern world has sort of everybody sort of spun off into their own. Yeah into their own um, almost like a la carte identity. Yes. So, and that's a problem. So it seems like he's just saying that personally motivism is bad, but... Uh, <laughs> group motivism. Yeah, yeah. I think you were hitting the actual, the real central critique of, of McIntyre is that um, he says, oh, so doing this alone is bad, but but... Having a group established a for group you is better. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. I think that's. But what then, but then we have we run into the same problem 
with Commun- communities cannot uh, these these lines of, of um, uh, beliefs can't still can't talk to each other. Yeah, so, I could never. Yeah. I can't critique anybody else's group. Yeah, and not, not only that, but we we do away with progress. I can't control. Ah, well, I can't do someone else's group. But right. how can I even evaluate my father's ethos? Right, I can't mm-hmm. even criticize my dad. You you would do that within the stories of the community. Yeah, but so, my community is different now. The, the community has changed. Generation to generation, we're going to be different, sure. right? And and I will say that I have not read these books, but yeah, everything we're saying is is the critique of After Virtue. McIntyre then followed up After Virtue with um, Whose Justice, Which Rationality, mm-hmm. and then a third book, Three Visions of Moral Inquiry. I think is mm-hmm. the name of the book. So even McIntyre acknowledges he hasn't fully answered the question right. here, but he's very clearly identified a problem. Yes. This is what Graham is painting the picture is of. He, is he a Christian, non-Christian? He was a Marxist when he wrote this. He, or Which is a fascinating it is. thing altogether. He wrote this to like fill out the um, the moral problems of Marxism. Uh, he was a Thomist. So he liked Thomas Aquinas, but was not Christian. I believe he is uh, Catholic, Catholic now. now. Yeah. Is he really? Yeah. yeah. Um, he, he finally found a team. I mean, right. He found that yeah. Telos then. Can you be Marxist and Catholic? Sure, I think you can. I think there are. Yeah, no, I, nah, there are parts. Nah. Of, uh, I, Not really. I, modern, That's a whole modern communist thing. nations. Uh, whatever. They yeah. Usually are are opposed to religion, but yeah. could someone hold views, Marxist views? And say yeah. what you will about Marxism, they have a teleology, yeah, and I think sure. that's yeah, what he was sure. attracted to. Yeah. yeah, it's a it's a material teleology, and yeah. it's an impractical teleology, and it's never and it, to get there, you need to enact a whole heck of a lot of violence. Right. Um, uh, uh, or is this how it's played out? But it has a vision of the future, which I think yeah. McIntyre found attractive. Appealing, yeah. And I think a lot of people find attractive based uh, in opposed to kind of a visionless, um, ateleological existence that a lot of sort of Western liberalism has. Right. We don't have a vision of the future. We just have a let's try to manage what we have more optimally. Right. But we don't have a strong sense of where we're going. Yes. Um, um, I think that's what you could maybe, um, probably something you could have criticized if we're going to talk political, both parties, like we actually, uh, you know, back maybe 20 years ago. So AJ, we teach, um, in our rhetoric class, we teach, we watch presidential, fa- we brought presidential logical, bingo yeah. or presidential debates to play logical fallacy bingo. And we watched a Bush Gore debate and I was, I didn't mention this to the class, but I was, as I was watching, I was thinking to myself, A, how incredibly similar both of their platforms were <laughs> like just almost indistinguishable that's funny and b it was all language of managing and optimizing as opposed to a strong vision of of mm. of, of a goal right um and i th- you know it it is unsurprising that that kind of that that you know has now kind of fractured a little bit that sort of um, anyway but that's a whole other podcast i guess is that still the debate that you all watch no we oh. go back we watch a bunch of different okay. ones um, yeah, we're trying to mix it up. We used mm-hmm. to do the Obama Romney mm-hmm. one, which was a pretty, that's a pretty entertaining mm-hmm. one for sure. But you know, the kid, it's, it's nice to be able to connect it to what's currently happening. Yeah. 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 The, the frustrating thing is in after virtue, McIntyre doesn't want to say there's a one size fits all good life. He, he wants to say that it's subject to times mm-hmm. and specifically your times in your context. So if you were born at this time in this place, you have a tradition, whether you like it or not, and your good life is going to sort of conform to that tradition. And you need virtue in order to go on the quest to understand what the good life is. This <laughs> right. is how he sort of ends the So you the need book. the good life so you can get to the good life? But you need virtue so you can get to the good life. Isn't virtue the good life? Mm-mm. Virtue um, is needed in order to understand what the good life is. 
He'll but talk- then probably at the end, like it was the journey all along. Sure. <laughs> some, some of that nonsense. Some of that garbage. The whole, the point of the journey is the road. Yeah, that kind of thing. He will, he will say at one point in the book that you need excellence to achieve that good life. Mm-hmm. And he breaks okay. it down into um, both a moral excellence, but then also like a, a technical. It's a techne. Mm-hmm. Techne is for a technical excellence and arete yeah. is for kind of a moral excellence. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. He punts the vision of the yes, good life exactly. at the end of the book, yes. but he is, I think, dead on on identifying the modern problem, yes. which is that everybody is an isolated a la carte identity yes. and everybody is trying to create their own thing. And as that gets further and as people are sort of getting further and further, further apart socially, everybody is clamoring in and crying for rights based to their a la carte identity. And our social institutions do not have the structural ability to keep up with all of those demands of new rights. Um, And so um, you can see this in sexual ethics. You can see this in all sorts of things. I find it very fascinating that you can see it in. So let's talk, you know, very, very briefly. Um, um, feminism in the 70s, 80s, and 90s, uh, wanting to carve out equality for women in the modern world, um, but very strongly saying that this is a woman. And now you have a, uh, a gender identity movement going on right now that's trying to carve out equality for either gender fluidity or uh, uh, what is being described as a sort of new class of people. And they're playing the same playbook that feminism had played in the 70s, 80s, and 90s. But now you've got the feminists who won those new rights saying, whoa, 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 whoa. We've got people, you're trying to redefine gender. We're not cool with that because we fought so hard to keep, to have our gender have, you know, um, power at the table. And so you now, you're not having every, it's not that everybody is coming in getting a seat at the table. You're actually seeing a lot more jockeying for power mm-hmm. amongst all of these, I guess you could call them, um, not subcultures, but um, uh, all of these um, I don't know, mimetic tribes, yeah, let's yeah. call it that. Sure. Um, these, uh, so we're now living in the world of all of these mimetic tribes who are, who are popping up and clamoring for rights, and we don't have the institutions to be able to give those rights without stripping rights from other ti- with other tribes, yeah. and it's it's actually getting to be uh, uh, a little um, sort of chaotic in terms of can our institutions give what this group wants? But to do that, you'll have to take away f- um, philosophical underpinnings of this group's identity yeah. and say, well, no, actually, there is no gender feminists. Um, or it can be whatever you want because this is what this group needs in order to have their right. You know, yeah. and, and then it gets really messy. And I'm not coming down and saying what I think about any of those philosophical positions. I'm just pointing out that the, app- talking to each that other, the apparatus right? that we have of sense making, or not sense making, the apparatus that we have of, of Consen- getting to consensus, consensus or conversation is or, yeah. um, uh, falling apart. It's falling yeah. apart, and rights is not going to give us the answers. Right. Falling back on, on the question of rights. Whether or not falling back to a question of the teleological good life can, uh, my gut is to say that it does. McIntyre, I think his gut is to say that it does, although I disagree with with him saying that it's uh group based it's yeah well i don't even know maybe it is uh, um i mean i'm enough of a christian to say that there is a kingdom right, right? Like, sure. and um that there is that everybody uh is is regenerated into the kingdom that you have new life and that you have the spirit within so i mean but 
somebody else will look at me and say, ah, it's a wacky group you're a right, part of. Exactly. Um, so anyway, that is, I guess, after <laughs> virtue. Sure, yeah. um, that, that's sort of the outline of his introduction and then the outline of his conclusion. We skip the whole middle where he traces the history of um, basically philosophical ethics. And I'm sure uh, that we could go through piece by piece and, and see the lines that he draws. I found it fascinating. I don't think it... I think getting to the conclusion is is helpful than just like mm-hmm. going through everything beat by beat. Yeah. <laughs> if you disagree with us, audience, <laughs> unfortunately, there's no framework for us to disagree <laughs> yeah, about. Right. So, you just got to feel it real strong. strong. <laughs> feel strong. If you want to protest us, you can protest by sending us an email yeah, at classicalstuff at veritasacademy.net. You can check out our website at classicalstuff. Put a lot of passion and indignation in that. <laughs> yep. The more emotion, the better. Yeah. Uh, you can tweet at us at the twits at C-L-S-S-C-A-L-C-A-L-S-S-C-A-L stuff. And if you want to call us Graham's phone number. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. I appreciate that one. I'm just kidding. Anyway, we're glad to have you listening and we will see you next time. And I'm, I'm really working hard on getting Genghis Khan ready for next week. And so look forward to that. If I actually do the work I'm supposed to do. Rock and roll. Rock and roll. All right. This is the boys of classical stuff. Signing off. Bye. Bye. Bye.